immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Once upon a time, there was a husband and a wife. They were living quiet lives, and they were keeping mainly to themselves. They weren't quite a normal couple, an average couple, because they had great wealth. They had a large stash of gold coins, which they had received by trading the golden eggs that were laid by their golden goose. One day, the husband came downstairs from his work-from-home office after a long day. He smelled something a little strange, so he made up a little rhyme, a little ditty, which he said to his wife whenever he got there. Fee-fi-fo-fum, I smell the blood of an Englishman. Be he alive or be he dead, I'll grind his bones to make my bread. At this point, a small little fairy-like creature bolted out from behind a cookie jar with a bag of the husband's coins. The husband chased after the little creature outside and chased him all the way until the little creature disappeared in a small little hole in the ground. After a few weeks, the husband was met with a similar smell when he came downstairs. He repeated the same little rhyme because he knew his wife said that she hated it, that it was annoying to her, but she was surely kidding because he was really proud of this little rhyme he had come up with. But then once he said it, the creature once again shot out from behind the grandfather clock in the corner. But this time, instead of holding a single bag of money, the little creature was holding the golden goose itself. He darted out. The husband chased the creature. Once again, the creature went to the hole in the ground outside and dove inside with the golden goose in it. The husband, not willing to lose the golden goose, dove into the hole as well and started climbing down the same little green plant that the creature had began to climb down. But the dastardly little creature wasn't going to allow this, so he, standing at the bottom of the plant, chopped it down, and the husband fell tragically to his death. And thus ends the tragedy of the giant and the beanstalk. You see, when a story is told from a different point of view, it changes how we see it, how we hear it, how we understand it. When we hear the story of these events that I just said, we expect to hear it from Jack's point of view. We expect to hear about magical beans and a, a, a cow that was traded. And now he's, his family's not going to be in poverty anymore because he found all this gold. We don't expect to hear a story about a giant who fell to his death after merely trying to keep what was already his. In our story today, we get basically nothing from John's point of view. We would think that he's the main character. He's the good guy. He's John the Baptist. It's a story about his death. And yet, most of our details aren't from John's perspective. They're rather from Herod's perspective. So we should think about what Mark is communicating by changing the point of view in this story. While Mark is still warning us of what our discipleship is going to look like, he's also giving us here some insight some understanding as to who it is that persecutes Christ's disciples, who it is that is going to possibly even put to death the people who follow Christ. 
So from our text this morning, we can see three qualities of those who persecute Christ's disciples. The first quality of a disciple's persecutors that we can see from our text this morning is that a disciple's persecutors simply don't know Jesus. Look at the first three verses. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous works or miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he's Elijah. And others said he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. News about Jesus had been getting around, his great miracles, the works that he had done. He had just sent out his disciples with his authority, and they were able to replicate some of his same works. And news of all that had gotten around to the point where it eventually reached King Herod. But these people who heard this had no idea who Jesus was. They could only think of him in terms of what they had already seen, in terms of what they had already heard, in terms of what they already knew about. When you are persecuted as a disciple of Christ, that persecution always comes from people who don't know Jesus, even though they may have heard of him. In today's story, Mark jumps back in time. It's like a flashback from verse 17 through 29, the rest of the story in our text today. In the flow of Mark's gospel, we don't yet know that John is dead. It's never been mentioned. Last time we heard anything about John the Baptist, he baptized Jesus Christ, and then he disappeared. We're to assume that he was continuing to do exactly what he was doing before that. And yet here, it just says he's dead and then gives us a flashback to explain exactly what happened when that happened. Because the announcement of his death is such a shock in the narrative that Mark has to elaborate on John's death. So then when we read his flashback, we have to remember the context. We have to remember that Mark places this story immediately after Jesus is rejected in Nazareth immediately after he sends out his disciples with instructions for what to do when they are rejected. Then he tells this story, this example of exactly what it might look like when you are doing exactly what you're supposed to be doing, and yet you're persecuted, persecuted even to the point of death at the end of your faithfulness for doing exactly what Christ called you to do as his disciple. He sends out his disciples with a warning and instructions for when they are persecuted, and then he gives them an example of what that persecution may look like. It's like Mark is laying out a 45-verse job description for the disciples. He's letting them know exactly what they can expect as they follow Jesus. Yes, even Jesus is rejected, so you shouldn't be shocked when you are. Yes, when you are sent out, you have to understand what to do when you are rejected because you are going to be rejected. And when you are rejected, it might look like this. It might even cost you your head as you go about doing exactly what I have called you to do. When you are rejected, you should see that as a testimony against them, he tells them. But when they reject you, they may kill you. Following Jesus could cost you your head because your persecutors don't know him, even though they have heard of him. And the persecutors here think that Jesus isn't that special. That's the core of why they don't understand who he is. They don't think he's that big a deal. Look at verse 15. Others said he's Elijah, and others said he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. Not only do they not know Jesus, but they don't even think he's all that big a deal. Some said he's Elijah, the peak of the prophets, but some said he's just another prophet, just one more in a long line of people who had already come and done similar things to him. Now, being the peak of the prophets, that sounds like a big compliment, right? Elijah was the prophet, the prophet of prophets. But to call the Son of God merely a prophet, 
even the peak of the prophets. That's an infinite demotion. They didn't understand who he was. We've already had Elijah, and the world is roughly the same as it was before. So this Jesus guy, even if he is Elijah, big deal. Continuing on, so some others didn't even think that he was Elijah. They said, I don't know, he's the next guy. Just another one. Being just another prophet should be a big deal to us because prophets are big deals. We know their names. Their stories are written in Scripture. We still talk about them. They're still, in some ways, heroes of the faith. They speak on behalf of God to his people. But there had already been just so many of them. There was just prophet after prophet after prophet, and the people didn't listen to any of them. The people ignored prophet after prophet after prophet. So one more in that long line just didn't even trip the radar for them. They didn't listen to the old ones. Why listen to the new one? This Jesus just didn't seem that special to them. He's not unique to them. A disciple's persecutors don't know Jesus. We know that because if they did, they wouldn't persecute his sheep. Think about Saul on the road to Damascus, right? He thinks he's, a, he's following God. He thinks he's doing exactly what he's supposed to be doing. He's on the way to Damascus specifically to persecute Christians. He's wanting to put them to death. And on the way, he's met by the risen Jesus who shows up and confronts Saul. Acts 9, 4, and 5 says, And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. You see what's happening? Saul is persecuting Jesus' followers because he doesn't know who he is. The first words out of his mouth are, Who are you? And Jesus answers, no, this is Jesus. I am the one you are persecuting. When you are persecuting my people, my sheep, you are persecuting me. And because you don't know me, you are continuing to persecute them. He's persecuting Christians and therefore persecuting Christ because he doesn't know who Christ is. From this point forward, when Saul sees who Jesus is, when he knows him, he no longer persecutes his people. If you are following Christ, you will be persecuted. You will be rejected. I can't say for certain what that is going to look like, but it is going to happen. And when you are persecuted, when you are rejected, what you have to remember is that you're persecuted and rejected by people who don't know the God that you do. They don't see him for who he is. That's why you have to continue to go to them. That's why you have to persevere in the face of persecution, in the face of rejection, continuing to go out, to spread his message, to do exactly what he's called you to do. You're persecuted by those who don't know him, so they remain in their evil. That's the second quality of a disciple's persecutors. They simply are evil because they don't know Jesus. They remain in their evil state. They remain to be evil. Look at verses 17 through 20. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he, Herod, had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to be your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. You see, you are persecuted by someone who is evil 
when you are persecuted for Christ's sake. And evil people simply do evil things. That's what they do. That's what we do. It's in their nature. Herod, from 17 on, is remembering back to all he had done to John. He sent for John. He seized John. He bound him. He put him in prison. And he did all this at the behest of his unlawful wife, Herodias. Herodias was at one time his brother's wife, and Herod took her for himself. It was against common practice. It was against the laws of the people he ruled. It was an evil thing for him to do, and it was in line with his nature as an evil man. He was an evil person simply doing evil things. So we should not be shocked when we encounter great evil in this world. It exists. And evil people do evil things. Sometimes we as Christians tend to clutch our pearls when we see horrors, when we see bad things happen. We, we tend to see it and say, oh no, how could this happen? Wow, what's going on? How can we live in a world where this exists? It's because we live in a world that's populated by evil people, just like we were. We live in a world that's filled with evil because it's filled with evil people. And evil people do evil things. But we as Christians are called to speak truth to evil. We're called to confront that evil, to counteract that evil to stand up in the face of that evil. Look at verse 18. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. He did exactly what he was supposed to do. He spoke truth to an evil man. But look at John's message. He simply said, this is not lawful. There's no malice there. There's no embellishment. There's not even any extra judgment, no extra scorn that's heaped on Herod for his great misdeeds. He simply points out the clear actions of Herod, and he calls them what they are. He said, this is unlawful. This is wrong. This is evil. What he's doing is he's calling on Herod to repent. He's not merely beating Herod into the ground for being an evil man. He's calling on Herod to stop doing that which is evil and turn to that which is good. He's not merely saying it for the sake of saying it. He is loving Herod by giving him a clear presentation of his own sin. He's letting even the king know that he should repent. He's coming before the king of the region and telling him that there is a perfectly holy God whose laws have been broken by this king. So in order for Herod to stop offending this true king who is over and above Herod, who is over and above all, He should repent of his sins, and he should follow the ways of God. That is John's message. He's confronting an evil man in his evil with the truth, but he's doing so in love. He's doing so for the sake of Herod. Christians should speak truth to evil people, but we always do so through the gospel, out of love for them. We do tell them the truth, that they are sinners, just like we were. We tell them that there's hope for sinners in the person of Jesus Christ who loved them and gave himself for them just as he did for us. When we come to them, we don't merely say, you are a sinner and that's bad. We say, you are a sinner and there's a God who loves sinners. There's a God who gave himself for sinners. One of my favorite preachers is named Matt Chandler. And in one random sermon years ago that I couldn't go back and find, but I wrote down the quote, whenever I heard it, because it was so impactful to me. In one of those sermons, he said, 
Our message is not that you're a sinner who needs to stop, who needs to stop sinning. Our message is that there's a loving God who wants to lavish his love on you despite your sin. And if you would get that, then your sin wouldn't seem so sweet. We do call them sinners. We do confront them with their sin. We do show them that they're sinning against a perfectly holy God. But our goal at the end of that isn't to get a bad person to be good. Our goal at the end of that is to get an old person to be a new person. Our goal at the end of that is for them to repent and believe in the God of the universe who does love them, who did give himself for them. They are a sinner. They do need to stop sinning. But merely better behavior doesn't do them any good eternally. If they turn, though, if they repent, if they believe, that does them eternal good. Our message is not that you're a sinner who needs to stop sinning. Our message is that there's a loving God who wants to lavish his love upon you despite your sin. And if you would get that, then your sin wouldn't seem so sweet. That's the message that John was bringing to Herod. Yes, we get the one quote. And I think he probably didn't say much more than that. But the heart behind it, what he was doing in fulfilling his gospel witness to Herod, was in calling him to repent. We do speak truth to evil people, but we do so with the remembrance that such were some of you. That the difference between me and an evil person is the blood of Christ applied to me. That's it. I, in and of myself, was an incredibly evil man, living in evil and doing sinful deeds. But I repented and believed and put my faith, hope, and trust in the God of the universe who loved me and gave himself for me. And that is what makes me no longer evil in God's sight. Not my better deeds, not me fixing myself, but by me repenting, turning from my sin, turning toward Christ, and believing that he has done for me more than I could ever do for myself. That he has loved me and saved me by living a perfect life for me and on my behalf. That's our message. We do confront evil, we do speak truth to evil, but we always speak the gospel in the face of evil. But when we do that, evil people don't always respond to the truth. Verses 19 and 20, Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. When people are faced with the gospel message of God's goodness, of their sin, of Christ's work for them on their behalf, the knowledge that if they want Christ's work applied to them, they must now repent and believe, they don't always respond to that truth. They're not always going to turn and repent and believe. Herod did not repent and believe. We can tell that from the rest of the story, right? If he would have repented and believed, John's head would not have ended up on a platter. But he didn't. Herod feared John. He feared his message. He was perplexed by his words, but not enough to actually do something about it. He may have been perplexed, but he wasn't perplexed enough to the point that he would actually change, that he would actually repent, that he would actually believe. He wouldn't actually turn from his sin, repent of the great evil that he had continued to do. He may have feared John's words, but he didn't fear John enough to free him. Herod thought that by merely listening to John, merely listening to his rebukes, hearing him gladly, 
He may have even possibly been feeling conviction of his own sin in light of what John was saying. Herod thought, that's enough. If I let this guy live, if I let him keep talking, cool. We're okay. He thought that was enough. And my fear is that for some of us in this room, we think that's enough. We think if we show up, if we listen, if you hear me talk for however long I go, roughly 35 to 40 minutes each week, and you hear either something that makes you feel good about how good God is, or something that makes you feel bad about how bad your sin is, that that's enough. You came, you listened, you heard, you left, you're fine. But that's not true. That's not how a Christian deals with the truth of God. That's not how a Christian responds when they're encountered with the gospel. We hear it, and then we confess our sin, and we repent. We believe in God's work on our behalf to save us from our sin. The Christian is marked by responding to the message of the truth with repentance and faith. We confess our sin to God and to each other, and then we move forward in the forgiveness that we've received, received, resolved to no longer continue committing those same sins. That's the difference between a Christian's response to John's rebuke and Herod's response. Herod was content to continue listening and doing nothing. When a Christian hears that, we have to continue listening and continue responding. Repentance and faith over and over and over. We continue to believe and we continue to repent, pressing on toward the goal that's ahead of us, pressing on toward the life that's ahead of us. When you're confronted with your own sin by someone who is loving you and speaking the truth to you, your response should not be to merely feel bad. You're also not supposed to just fly off the handle in anger. You should repent and believe. Confess your sin and repent of that sin. That's what Christians do. That's what shows you to be a Christian or not. Whether when you're confronted with your sin, you continue to confess and repent, or whether you get mad, whether you shut down, whether you're willing to merely listen and not do anything about it. Christians confess sin and repent of sin. That's what we do. That's what marks us. And because of who we are, because of what we do, because we continue to speak truth to power in the face of persecution, that may result in our death. Because the third quality of a disciple's persecutors is that a disciple's persecutors may kill him. A disciple's persecutors may take his own life. That's what it might cost you to be someone who loves Christ and does exactly what he has called you to do. Let's look at the rest of our verses this morning. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish and I will give it to you. you." And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. 
A disciple's persecutors may kill them. Your persecutors may kill you because you are not a factor for them. You don't play into the equation. They don't care for you or who you are. Look at the first few verses again. Though he feared John, the opportunity came when Herod's birthday came. And the daughter came in and danced, and Herod starts promising up to half of his kingdom. Herod is not thinking about John in the least. John is the furthest thing from Herod's mind. Herod was having his birthday party and wasn't giving John a second thought. It never occurred to him to move to protect John in the midst of his party, the man who, though he greatly feared, he wanted to keep alive. He makes a foolish promise to his stepdaughter after probably being drunk and pleased with her sensual movements as she danced for them. Herod is not a good guy doing good things. This promise that he's making is not the promise of a responsible man. It's the promise of a scumbag at a strip club. Up to half of his kingdom because he's having a good time on his birthday? John's well-being was the furthest thing from Herod's mind. John simply wasn't a factor for Herod. He was willing to give up half of his kingdom because it was his birthday, because he was an evil man continuing to do evil things, and John was not a factor for him. Then whenever the the daughter comes back, when she returns with her wish, Herod is too weak to care about John anymore. Notice what it says. The king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. He may have been exceedingly sorry, but not enough to save John's life. Don't be fooled here. Herod isn't beheading John because he's just such a man of his word. He's so tied to the promise that he made in haste that he couldn't possibly break that. He's doing it because he doesn't want to be embarrassed at his birthday party. He said something in haste, and he doesn't want people to think that he may have possibly erred in what he promised. He doesn't want to go back on a promise. He doesn't want to tell a lie because he doesn't want to be embarrassed by that. Herod here is not George Washington at the cherry tree. He's King Herod at the chopping block. He doesn't want to be embarrassed in front of his guests, so he has John's head cut off. He'd rather save just a little bit of face than have to awkwardly possibly say, no, I'm not going to do that. Have to possibly awkwardly preserve the life of a man he has in his hands in prison. John just wasn't a factor for Herod. You may be persecuted, and when you are persecuted, those persecutors may not even give you a second thought. That is unless they want your head. Because while Herod wasn't paying any attention to John, there was someone who was. Herodias was hyper-focused on John the Baptist. She had a clear vision of exactly what she wanted to happen, of exactly what she wanted to do here. Verse 21 said, when the opportunity came, she had been laying in wait She was waiting for this one moment. She had bided her time until this time. And she thought, this is my chance. She sent her daughter to dance, knowing that something like this might happen. And then when the girl came to ask her what Herod should give her, Herodias did not hesitate. Verse 24, she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. She was given the opportunity to ask for up to half of Herod's kingdom, 
And she said, John the Baptist's head. Without a second thought, without any deliberation, without any other conditions. She could have asked for that and a lot more, right? John the Baptist's head isn't anywhere close to half the kingdom. She could have started with the head and then gotten to some houses. But she didn't do that. She said, all I want, my one goal is his head. Because though your persecutors may not hold you as a factor, they may hold you as a factor to the point that they want your head. What a strange party this must have been on Herod's birthday. The birthday boy's stepdaughter is provocatively dancing for everyone's enjoyment. He's drunk in the corner trying to give away half his kingdom. She comes back. She asks for the head of a guy who's in prison on a platter, which wasn't a detail her mother gave her. That must have been just because it was a party. Platters make it more festive. So once you add that to the head, now it's okay because it's a birthday party. What a strange party. Herod, the king he was, really throws a rager. But the only person in the midst of this party, the only person in the midst of all that's going on who's paying any attention at all to John was the one who wanted his head. And Herod agrees. John the Baptist here is killed. His head is cut off at the request of a teenager who doesn't even want his head herself. He's killed by the plotting of a woman who was unlawfully married, who bided her time, who waited for the moment that she could pounce, waited for the moment where she could get rid of him once and for all, this pest who continued to tell her that what she was doing was wrong. He's killed by a king with so little backbone that he can't even say no when he's asked to kill a man for no reason. What an undignified end for John the Baptist. He's buried by his disciples sometime later when they heard of it. It wasn't immediate. Eventually, he was buried by his disciples. He was laid in a tomb without pomp, without ceremony. It was an undignified end for the man of whom Jesus himself said that there was no greater man born of woman than John the Baptist. He had his head cut off in prison. And we should expect no better. We should not be surprised when we receive no difference because the disciples' persecutors may kill him. I know that thought is probably far from our minds here right now, 2022 America. But there are Christians all over the world who have to think about that every day. And they persevere every day. They continue to speak truth to power every day. They continue to maintain their witness, to follow Christ, to take up their cross and follow him every day, knowing that they live under the threat of death if anyone were to find out, if the wrong people were to find out. And they do it anyway. There is no discipleship other than the discipleship that is ready for this. If you have a faith that wouldn't stand when someone tries to take your head, you probably don't have the same faith that John the Baptist had. You probably don't have the same faith that Christians have. You may not be called upon to this degree, to this end, to that gruesome end, but you have to be ready for it because Jesus told you, take up your cross and follow me all the way to mine. We follow a Savior whose life ended gruesomely at a cross even though he had another life coming. 
So we shouldn't be surprised when our life ends gruesomely in just the same way, even though we have another life coming. A faithful death in the face of persecution is not as undignified an end as it may possibly seem. Tertullian, an early church father, once said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. God has shown over and over throughout history that when his people are persecuted, when they die for their faith in him, he continues to work, he continues to move in such a way that his church has grown and that his glory has spread. So a disciple's persecutors may kill him, but like a seed in the ground buried in the hope of the resurrection, a martyr never dies in vain. Those who are faithful to the end will receive their reward. That's what Christ has called us to. He said, I am rejected, so you shouldn't be surprised when you are. I am sending you out even though you are going to be rejected, and I'm telling you what to do in the face of that rejection. And when you are rejected, it might cost you your head, but you have to go anyway. That's what he calls us to. A disciple's persecutors don't know Jesus. They are evil and they may kill him, but he has to be ready in the face of all of that. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've done for us, Lord. Thank you for the calling that you've put on us. Thank you for the opportunity to live a life just like you did, to die a death just like you did. Give us strength for the day of persecution when it comes. Give us a faith that stands fast in the face of it. Give us a faith that is ready for it. But God, we hope this doesn't happen. We would rather serve you in a life that doesn't end gruesomely. We would rather serve you in a long life that's filled with your love and spreading your name throughout the entire earth without any of that pain, without any of that suffering. But we know that you're good in the midst of that pain, in the midst of that suffering. So if that's what you have planned for us, help us meet that. Help us be ready for it. Help us be a people who will follow you to whatever end, though it costs us our head. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.